The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Yea, Lord, t'was thy rich bounty gave my body, soul, and all I have in this poor life of labor. Lord, grant that I in every place may glorify thy lavish grace and help and serve my neighbor. Let no false doctrine me beguile. Let Satan not my soul defile. Give strength and patience unto me to bear my cross and follow thee. Lord Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, my God and Lord, in death thy comfort still afford. Amen. A couple of uh, announcements. Let's see. Uh, Lenten devotionals. If you haven't picked one of those up, there's, there's a ton at the Welcome Center available there. If you're interested in, in the, having your child in the pre-confirmation catechesis and communion, so early communion, uh, talk to me. We'll be starting that off soon if there's, a, if there's an interest. Um, the, in the narthex, you can sign up to help with soup suppers, and those soup suppers are before our Lenten midweek services. Uh, the soup suppers are at 6 and the service at 7. There's a couple spots still for Feed the Need, or at least there were prior to now, so unless someone signed up after early service, but there's like three spots left for Feed the Need. Yeah, easy way to, to, to volunteer and, and, and to uh, serve side-by-side side with some of the Bethany community. And also sign up for uh, flowers, for Easter flowers. The deadline is next Sunday, so we can get those ordered in time for Easter. And that, you can sign up uh, at that flower sign-up table up the stairs there on your right. Um, next Sunday during this Bible study, we won't have Bible study. We're, we're, we, uh, we opted to, to have a special time for the organ forum. So if there's time, if there's, if there's absolutely no conversation, I'm happy to jump in and talk about Luke. But I imagine there'll be things to talk about um, at the organ forum. So as Cantor alluded to in the announcements after church, uh, the idea is it, it's an expensive project. And I mean, we kind of all know, like we've got all this, we've been blessed with such generosity from folks who have left us a good amount of money to help take care of a lot of our delayed maintenance expenses in the, in the church and school building. Uh, but everyone's got a different opinion over like which is which is better, like which, where should we put the money and how, like for some people, certain things are more precious than others. So obviously the goal here is to, to, to maintain congregational peace and unity. Because I don't know about you, it is, it is more fun to be in a church when people get along than when they don't, right? So we're trying to, keep it, trying to keep everybody together on this as best we can and recognizing there's differences of opinions. Part of the way that we're, that we're going about the expenditure of some of, this, uh, some of these gifts is like asking for congregational buy-in, not by way of a vote. It's e- as we learn from the government, it's easy to spend someone else's money. Um, but, so it's not just a matter of spending the money that we have, but actually having the congregation communicate their true and sincere desires of how to spend the money based on uh, pledges. So like to try to attempt to raise a certain percentage of the money that we're going to ask from the total bequest uh, of, the, of the memorial funds there. So um, when it comes to the organ, there's different opinions and different passions there. So please, please come next Sunday uh, to learn more about the, the needs of the organ, the expense, the mechanism by which we're trying to get this paid for um, so that we don't have to spend a lot of time at the Voters Assembly talking about that. So we're trying to, trying to make the Voters Assembly shorter by having that conversation next Sunday during Bible study hour. Uh, yay. It is interesting, though. It's, a, it's interesting to hear some of the, there's a lot. That, I mean, I think a lot of it's summed up with, 
Um, it is called an organ. So, like, think about your organs. Most of them, except for your skin, you don't really see, right? So, like, the, the, so the, the working parts, the organ, the, these essential internal parts of the organ, those are all, like, dying. So we've had, like, quadruple bypasses and such with the organ of the, of the organ. Um, and so it's finally at a point where, like, ah, this thing's going to blow up on us at some point. And so... Um, yeah, it's important. Anyway, uh, let's, let's look. So today, uh, chapter 24, and we, we, um, we skirted through the end of chapter 23, a couple of final notes at the end of 23. So we got Jesus. Um, he's off the cross. He's been buried there in the tomb. And at the end of chapter 23, the, the, the ladies saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments to prepare the body. Uh, they were going to go back after the Sabbath to prepare the body. Because remember, the, the, the accounting of days for the Jew was when sun sets, it's tomorrow. So like for you and me, it's not until after midnight. But for them, the setting of the sun is the next day. So on Friday, and this actually comes up for Jesus to be in the tomb for three days because he's, he's, he's on the cross on Friday during the daytime. And then he dies during the daytime and they take him off the cross. That's day one. Then they got to get him off the cross and in the tomb before sunset because the Sabbath laws are regarding you know, restricting movement and doing certain things. And they especially didn't want his body on the cross on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, which starts at sunset. For you and me, it'd be sunset on Friday. It's technically Saturday, you see. So uh, they wanted Jesus off the cross and then they needed to be all in their situated and, and, and uh, back in their homes before sunset on, on Friday afternoon or Friday night. And then they just waited on Saturday. And then on early morning, the next morning, so they could have gone, what, we, what you and I would call Saturday night. But the problem with going to a tomb at night, it's creepy. But also, you can't see. So they're waiting for the first light. You know, they, so they go, they're going on, on what we would call Easter morning or Sunday morning. That was the plan. So they're like, okay, after the Sabbath, we got all this stuff together. And we'll go finish anointing Jesus' body for a proper burial. And so they rested according to the commandment. Um, on, that's the end of chapter 23. So a lot was fulfilled in, the, in this death of Jesus that, that have been building over the course of the Gospel of Luke. So especially highlighted there with the tearing of the temple uh, curtain, we have this, the whole concept of temple sacrifices. The entire Old Testament system of, of sacrifices have always been waiting for and pointing toward the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so with Jesus on the cross, fulfilling all of that. So we have this fulfillment of the sacrifice happening in conjunction with the Passover, which remember the Passover event from Exodus, the whole, the whole idea of the lamb being slain, the spotless lamb being slain, the, board, the blood put on the doorpost door so that the angel of death passes over. So this whole idea of that lamb being the foreshadowing of Jesus, so that John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now Jesus is actually being that Passover lamb, fulfilling the sacrifices, fulfilling the Passover lamb, that the angel of death would pass over you and me. And he's doing it all there on the cross. Um, he fulfills the law on our behalf. And so we get this, 
um, reference to the Sabbath at the end of chapter 23. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment, which big, brings up a whole long conversation about the Sabbath and how, how Christians still think about the Sabbath today. And um, I, I, I don't want to go too far down that road, but you could, someone can make the argument. So you, you Christians make a big deal about let's say murder, when it comes to like abortion or just generally murdering, we're like, we still keep the fifth commandment. Why is murder bad? Because the fifth commandment. Why is adultery bad and marriage good? Because of the sixth commandment. And yet we're not so gung-ho when it comes to the third commandment insofar as, or, or, or if the Sabbath is, ta- is being treated in the same way it was in the Old Testament regarding, okay, before sunset on Friday night, we've got to make sure we're in our homes and not taking too many steps, right? When do we typically cut the grass? On Saturday, right? Like that's the day for, that's a, that's a reasonable day for projects around the house. Well, that's when we do a lot of work and not rest necessarily, right? So this idea of understanding the Sabbath as a Christian and just, and I'll, and I'll just assert it just for the sake of time. The idea is that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has fulfilled the Sabbath. He, he is the Sabbath rest from the law for us. So that while the Sabbath was given to God's people in the Old Testament for a purpose, the most important purpose for the Sabbath was for people to actually hear and rejoice in the Lord's word. As Luther makes the case, uh, and this is also just common sense, uh, we don't make anything holy. We don't make the Sabbath day holy. What makes anything holy? God, through his word. So that's the connection then that Luther picks up on in the large and the small large catechisms that this, in the way that a Christian thinks about the third commandment is whatever God's word, which makes anything holy, including days of the week, days of our our entire life is made holy by hearing and rejoicing in the Lord's word. And so that when you think about the, the small catechism, when it comes to the, when it comes to the Sabbath is that we would we would uh, joyfully read and learn God, hear, hear and learn God's word, right? Glad, gladly hear and learn it. So that the, because what God is doing for us in his word is actually making us holy. And it's by that same word that the day is holy. And it's made holy by him. We don't make it holy. We keep it holy or he keeps it holy in the proclamation of his word. Hebrews 4 makes a case that in Christ we have entered our Sabbath rest so that instead of thinking about our tr- trying to please God by way of the law, like we're trying to appease God and, and the, the law is there by which, um, for the purpose of us to please God, now we rest from the law. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. The law has its place to be sure in ordering our lives and showing us our sins, but has no bearing in God's love toward us. That's all been fulfilled in Christ. So in Christ, we are in the Sabbath rest. That's, that's the argument that Hebrews makes. So as a Christian, it's important, that, it's important for me that, that you would, they think this through a little bit because when someone can easily make the argument to you, who, you're, such a, you're, so, you're so diehard when it comes to not murdering people. You're pretty inconsistent though because you don't, because you're cutting your grass on Saturday. And then you got the problem with the Catholics back in whatever council it was, like change the Sabbath day to Sunday. And the Seventh-day Adventists really get hung up on that point. Have you met any Seventh-day Adventists? So the whole thing there, because they're, they're, they're thinking, well, the Sabbath, we're still trying to, we, we keep this particular commandment by going to church. 
which still misses the point. It's about God's word, which we hear daily, gladly and daily hearing and learning this thing. Um, but so the Catholics just, the, the, by decree, the Roman Catholics, according to the Seventh-day Adventist assertion, uh, made the Sabbath day Sunday. We're like, wait, hold on. You can't just change the commandment there from sun, Saturday to Sunday. So there are lots of confusion on the, on the teaching there. And um, maybe a, a discussion for another day. But in short, um, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath rest. And now in the, now in the New Testament church, we, the, the Sabbath is kept for us as we hear and rejoice in the Lord's word. Which, of course, happens at church, but also happens whenever we're hearing and rejoicing in God's word. And, and also living from his word. That is, going through my daily life knowing that the Lord has forgiven my sins and is with me always. We're living from his promises and his word. That's all wrapped up into that Sabbath. So it's not as much, it's not at all this like don't take X amount of steps or something. But it's always toward hearing and rejoicing the Lord's word. Uh, so let's see. And then oh, last, as we recall, I guess just to, for our own experience here, like on, on Good Friday, the Christian celebration of Good Friday and Easter, I think is a unique, it, it's a joyful thing. But like, think about your own experience on Good Friday. You come to church and you sing this like somber music. Everything is black. The altar is stripped. And we're focusing on this death of Jesus, and it's especially profound for us because we know that it's not just that Jesus died, but that he died, what? For, yeah, because of me. So it's very personal, and, um, but it's also this tragic. So we hear this recounting of like Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering that he endured in our place, the suffering that we deserve, that he was taken uh, for us. But it's not... We have to be, we have to be careful to push against this like pagan understanding because like especially with the ancient pagan cults like the Baal, Baal goddess, uh, gods and such, where the idea is the seasons, like our experience of the seasons is this manifestation of what's happening in the divine realm. So there's a, rela- there's a death and resurrection happening in the, among the, the deities. And so every spring there's like new life I mean, just think about it from just our own seasons. Everything dies in the fall. It stays dead for a while in the winter. And then in the spring, it grows and starts to flourish. Well, that must, rep- that must be like some kind of manifestation of what's happening with God. And that was the belief in some of these pagan cults. And so the, for the Christian, we don't actually, not, we're not getting together and thinking that Jesus is actually, obviously you know this, hopefully, that Jesus doesn't die every year and then rise again every year. But we're just remembering it. And so we do it. We're not, we're not trying to emotionally manipulate ourselves. Like, hey, we're, it's Good Friday, so we're trying to make ourselves feel really bad, like artificially, to take ourselves through some kind of a, a game. So guard against that. But we're simply acknowledging that the Lord Jesus has died for us, and we tend to forget that. Um, and that my, it was my sense that put him on the cross. So especially on Good Friday, we focus on that particular event. And it is a, it's a sobering thing. And yet it's also called Good Friday. But this, so this is an interesting thing. Uh, when I was a vicar in Albuquerque, there's this old guy who's now with Jesus. I forgot his name. Um, 
But he, he, he was typically a shut-in, but he came to church on Good Friday, and he was there super early because he got, got a ride and got dropped off, and he's sitting on, like, the aisle. And I'm walking, to, uh, walking up to get dressed in the sacristy, and he stops me, and he says, Vicar, um, why, with, with all the suffering that Jesus has to go through, why is it called, why is it called Good Friday? The, the dude was, like, in his 90s. He's been a Lutheran his whole life. I'm a Christian his entire life. I'm like, how did, like... Surely someone's told you this, but just in case, so you can't blame me for never telling you. Like, why? Just reflect on this. Why is Good Friday good? It wasn't good for Jesus, it seems. It's like the most, it's the most hollowed or somber day of the entire church calendar. We call it good. Why? There's no Easter without Good Friday. The cel- all the celebration of Easter at the resurrection is, well, it's ultimately good because it's for our good. So Jesus is dying. His death on the cross is everything for us. It's paying the price. So in that sense, it is good. Yeah, you know. Well, it's everything for God because if Jesus hadn't done it, God wouldn't have his heart's desire, which is all of us in heaven with him forever. So good from his perspective as well. Ultimately good, good for him to, say, to want to, to desire to save humanity in this way. Right. So there's lots of good. So not only from our perspective, um, and also from God's perspective of saving sinners, that it's good. Um, and then, but that, then we have that lag. That so Friday night, and then, I mean, my my experience of this is always weird because like sometime in the middle of Lent, we start hymn planning and service planning for Easter. So you know. The pastors are walking, away, walking around humming Easter music already prematurely because we're picking the hymns and you're, we have to write the sermon for Easter Sunday on like Monday, Thursday. So it's not like you're, you're, thinking, you're thinking ahead to the next thing. But, but think about from your own experience when you come to church on Good Friday and you kind of leave in a somber way reflecting on our sin, our need for a Savior. But then there's this joy. Like Saturday's kind of like just there. And, and really, it's, it is this rest. Like there's, there, it's, it's this calm before the excitement of Saturday and our own experience of Easter Sunday. And maybe if, if you're entertaining people, you're, you're, trying to, you're getting food ready and you're getting ready for this Easter celebration with your family or whatever. Um, but there's like this excitement. Like our little girls are always excited to wear their Easter dresses and get their bows out and like all this anticipation for this joyful celebration coming up the next day. And then you walk into church and you smell the lilies or more importantly, the bacon. <laughs> the Easter subtle plug, subtle plug for the youth uh, breakfast on Easter morning. Uh, but yeah, the, but the lilies and the and the and just the whole celebration. And you hear the choirs warming up and the and the trumpets playing and this this triumphal celebration. Uh, but also then uh, that's that's we experience that also on the Easter vigil. Um, and this is. Part of it gets us into chapter 24 here for, t- for today's, um, today's portion of the Bible study in Luke 24 is that the women go to the tomb on, it says, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. So some of you might have had the experience of having like a sun, an Easter sunrise service in your church. My home church in Mississippi always had an Easter sunrise service, and we did it outside, like in the front of the church as the sun was, we're facing the east as the sun would come up. But interestingly enough, like Easter usually falls like 
a lot of times it falls on when the time change happens. So like we're all outside and then you see all the people who forgot to set their clocks coming in late. <laughs> Everybody's like, it's a really awkward way to walk into church with everyone watching you come late. But, um, but so we, we don't, we, we actually used to have a sunrise service here and that's totally fine. So to, to have a sunrise service because that's when the women go to the tomb. And so early in the morning, we have a, a celebration of Easter. But uh, many churches, though, replace the sunrise, the sunrise service idea with what's called the Easter vigil, which is, what we, which is what we have. So think again, going back to the Jewish counting of time with sunset starting the next day. So from our counting and our experience, when sun sets on Saturday night, it's Sunday, according to Jesus's time on Jesus' calendar time. So uh, at that point, we're able, to, we're, we're able to start thinking about Easter like we're, like, as if we're in Easter on sunset. That's why we start the service on Saturday night. We started outside by candlelight. We, we institute the new Paschal candle, that Easter candle that we have in the church for the next year. And there's implications for that we're going to talk about here in a moment. We hear the, all the fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament um, in long, very long readings from the Old Testament. Um, but we hear how we're making all these connections, how these things are all fulfilled with the death and resurrection of Jesus because we're in the context of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when that's f- fresh on your mind and you're hearing a lot of these Old Testament texts, it's very clear what the implication is of these things. Um, and then halfway through, the, halfway through the service, we actually... It, we hit the lights, um, and there's the, proc- the Easter morning proclamation that Christ is risen, and then we have all the Christ the Lord is risen music and this triumphal, wonderful stuff on Saturday night, uh, which is basically just an early, an early celebration of, of um, uh, sunrise service. If you're a diehard in your sunrise service and you really want one back, uh, too bad. Okay. <laughs> Though we did it for years, like we'd get here, we were start one, one Sunday, like we looked around, and we're like, the only people who are here have to be here. <laughs> it's like the ushers and sacristans and acolytes and their families and the pastors who are like in empty, otherwise an otherwise empty sanctuary <laughs> because everybody's coming. And we didn't have the Lord's Supper because we had the Lord's Supper later. So we like, people weren't coming to that anyway. Uh, that's part of why we don't do it. It's fine. It's great. It's a fun, great practice. Um, so the first day of the week would be uh, Sunday, on the, on the first day of the week at early dawn. So this gets at a couple of things. That's why we worship on Sundays. This is it. It's because it's on Sunday, the first day of the week, when Jesus rose from the dead. And then uh, we see this continued practice among the disciples, like they would go to the temple on Saturdays uh, to preach, because that's when every, all the Jews were all gathered together for hearing God's word. And so that's when you find everybody together. And so they would still go and proclaim the gospel there. But then also they began meeting together on the first day of the week to have things like prayer, the Lord's Supper, to practice all the things that Jesus had given them to practice. And that's just become by default when, we, when Christians worship. Um, do we have to worship on Sundays? Let me rephrase that. That's a bad question. Um, did Jesus institute for us to worship on Sundays? Of course not. 
That's just that we, that's the day the Christians started, started worshiping because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead and we're free to worship whenever. And it's, it's especially convenient for us because it's, I mean, prior to what, the 1980s, everybody was off work. So it's convenient time to get everyone together. So school's not happening, people aren't at work, so it's, easy, it's a common time that we can all be together sometime. If everyone's schedule all of a sudden changed, we're all working on, we're all working on Sundays, then we find a different time, right? So we're free to adjust that to accommodate people's needs and schedules, but it's not bound to a particular day. Again, going back to the Sabbath day, what makes the day is what the Lord is doing on it. Not like some kind of measurement of time, like a 24-hour period, like this day is somehow better. What makes it holy is what God is doing. And he happens to be able to do this whenever, whenever we're hearing God's word. He breaks that, he breaks into our sin with his forgiveness. Um, And then um, being the first day of the week, this is, um, the church has historically really embraced this number eight, Um, especially like in our Lutheran circles, um, Dr. Just at at, um, Fort Wayne's Seminary, Concordia Theological Seminary is really big on the eighth day and new creation. But the idea of there are seven days of creation or six, six days of creation. And on the seventh day, the Lord rested. And then... So here, in the same way, we've got Jesus dying on the Good Friday, resting on Saturday, and then Sunday actually starts the cycle over again. This is day one, but it's day one of the new creation. So now Jesus has risen from the dead and has overcome the power of death that ripples through all of creation. So it's not just that, remember like in Romans, it talks about all of creation groaning, waiting for the redemption. So all of creation, especially especially us as believers are given this new creation by the Lord's resurrection from the dead. And we are made new creations also in holy baptism. So this is picked up with, I have a picture there in your, in your handout. A lot of times you'll see baptismal fonts that are eight-sided. And that the reason, the reason why eight sides, again, Jesus didn't say to, to do this, but this is all, everything that we do in the church teaches, like even the most seemingly inconsequential things, everything teaches, even if we're teaching that something is not important to us. Um, so like, for example, the, our baptismal font is also pictured there on your handout. Uh, I think like Pat, Pastor Russell used to say that the, we made sure that we, we built the baptismal font into the foundation of the building so that no one can ever remove it. It's so central. It's so important. So we're, it's not just, oh, we just need a font. We could have just gotten a font because ultimately the baptism's efficacy is not about the, the vessel which carries the water, right? And yet we are teaching, we're teaching about the importance of the thing by the vessel that we choose. So, so also with the, with, when it comes to communion, we use really fancy stuff. How many of you drink, out of, drink your coffee out of like silver chalices, Right? And, and then how shocking would it be if we use like red solo cups for communion? Right? Would it still count? Of course. But what are we saying? Like what kind of message are we sending when we, when we kind of, it shows a lack of importance and we use red solo cups for other things and it's confusing, right? Um, so we have these, we call them sacred vessels or ho- holy vessels. That is, they've been set apart for a particular purpose. They don't carry any kind of magical thing, 
But like, if, if we were like, we ran out of styrofoam cups and then I'm like, hey, Joshua, can you go grab the chalice off the sacristy and give me a decaf? It's like a jar, it's not for that. It's been set apart for a different purpose. Um, so, so too with, with fonts. But ever, again, everything teaches, um, even in our architecture. So the church recognized that, so they went with the eight-sided font to, to, in, to indicate the new creation that the Christian is baptized into so that now as, as, as one who has been baptized into Christ, while I'm still in my sinful flesh, I'm also the new man which the scripture talks about the new, the new believer. So daily, my, my baptismal life is a daily killing of the old Adam and a daily new man arising and living before God, right? So this new creation that's given to me, especially in my baptism, and that's uh, my question there, what is the connection between Easter and baptism? So we get this, the Romans 6, we hear it every, every Easter, we hear it, um, especially at funerals, that we're baptized into the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So just as he has died and rose, so too will we. That's why, B, question B there, the connection symbolized in our sanctuary, the, in, in, in case you haven't had a chance to come to a funeral here, but you, maybe if you've been an acolyte or seen our acolytes, we have that candle there. It sits by the baptismal font. It's called the Paschal candle. I think Pascha. Paschal is also a word for Easter or Pascha, the, the suffering and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So this candle, one might ask, well, why did you take a picture of the back of the font and not the front so you can get the front of the Paschal candle? It's the only one I had on my phone when I was putting the handout together. So no significance. <laughs> Uh, the front of that candle actually has a crucifix on it. It's pretty cool. But so on the Easter vigil, we get a new candle and we, it has the year on it. It's got the, the, uh, it's got a picture of Jesus or a crucifix of Jesus. And there's a nail marking his head, his hands and his feet and his side. And we recount those wounds. And then we process in with the, with the Paschal candle. And we set it there by the baptismal font. Now here's the, again, everything teaches. This is not God instituted, but here's the connection. We light the Paschal candle whenever there's a baptism. It draws your attention. Why is, the, why is the acolyte walking over to that other candle? Why is that candle bigger? Why is it next to the water, right? And all these questions start coming up. Well, it draws my attention to baptism, which is that, isn't that the candle that we first instituted on Easter? So it connects my baptism to Easter. But we also light the candle on, at funerals. So the casket will be up in the front, which we've covered in a giant white cloth called a pall, symbolizing that we've been baptized into the holiness of Jesus. And the white robes that the saints are wearing in heaven as they, as they wave their palm branches in victory, right? This idea of being clothed in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus. So we cover, cover, the, pall, cover the, the casket in this white pall and we light the candle. So we're connecting. Jesus said to do none of these things. But it's, it's a tremendous comfort for me and for you as we're, as we've now, we're, we're having the funeral for one of our departed loved ones. We have this reminding, we're, we're reminded that we are here celebrating because this person is with Jesus, not because of anything that they've done, but because of their being in Christ. They're covered in the righteousness of Jesus and, that, and they got that gift in holy baptism. And so we're connecting Easter to baptism, to funeral. That kind of triangle there, right? That's why we do it. We also will occasionally will light that Paschal candle on, um, on feast days, especially uh, 
big when it's a martyr, the death of one of the saints, a, a martyr death that we're remembering. But it's, it's still connecting the same idea, the gifts that the Lord has given in, in baptism. That same theme is, is of connecting Easter and baptism and, um, and a resurrection is confessed in our hymns. Most clearly, God's own child, I gladly say it, I'm baptized into Christ, right? Death, you cannot end my gladness. I'm baptized into Christ. Satan, hear this proclamation, I'm baptized into Christ. So all of the Easter joy, all that experience in our emotions and uh, just our experience of Sunday morning on Easter, that is delivered to us personally in holy baptism. That's how the Lord designed it. So we would have, we would, we would have the same uh, certainty that we too will rise again just as he has risen from the dead. Um, how does the day of the Lord's resurrection impact? Which day are we talking about that? Um, yeah. So that, I just covered a lot there. So let's pause and see if we have any questions on we have Sabbath, we have Paschal candles, we have baptismal fonts. A lot of direction we could go. Any comments or questions there? All right. So the first day of the week, at early dawn, they go to the tomb taking the spices. Um, but since they prepared them two, two days before, what are they bringing? Old spice. <laughs> <laughs> I just came up with that now. That's good. That's a good one. Uh, that, so, but, but, so think myrrh. So the connection of the, what they would be using to anoint dead bodies is that's part of the significance of the, of the gifts given by the Magi, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, ultimately, especially myrrh pointing to his, um, his burial, his being anointed for death. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So as they're, as they're I mean, the different gospel accounts cover different details of this. Some of them were, were, like, as they were walking to the tomb, they start talking about, oh, yeah, there's a giant rock there. How, what are we going to do about that? They had forgotten that that was going to be a problem. Um, but then they, were, they get there, they're surprised to see. In, in a way, they're probably kind of happy. Oh, no, we don't have to roll the stone away. It's already rolled. But then they're like, wait a second, why have... It's like if you forgot your, your uh, garage door opener. You're like, ah, oh, how am I going to get back into my garage? And then you get home and your garage door is open. You're like, oh, that's good. It's, wait a second, why is my garage door open? <laughs> So that's the same idea, probably. Um, they get to the tomb. The, as I mentioned last week, some of these, you can find these pictures of, of tombs in the area, but they would have like had this trench almost, a groove in the ground where they could have rolled a, a tremendous stone with taking multiple guys to move it, to put it in front of the, in front of the uh, tomb so the animals ultimately wouldn't get in there and, and uh, eat the body and stuff. So maybe a large disc, the commentators say it's a large disc-shaped stone that would have likely been rolled in, into a channel to keep out animals, taking several men to move it. Um, then, they, then they went in, which is, I mean, th that took some bravery. You got a group of women in the early morning. And th so what, what could have happened here? There, there's a lot of potentially violent things that could have been in there or violent people, or if it's, maybe it's grave robbers, or so like, why would they just walk on in? But they do, and they just walk in. They, they don't miss that point. This shows some bravery there, some interest. And they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And there we have lots of questions. So that, what happened to the body? Um, this is where, and I think I've got this in my handout, where, like, ultimately the Christian confession moves from 
um, simply reciting historical facts so that, that Jesus actually was crucified on a Roman cross under the reign of Pontius Pilate. That's why we have Pontius Pilate in the creed, by the way, because of the, it's, it grounds it in history. It's not once upon a time in a land far, far away. It's under Pontius Pilate. So we know where it's, where it's happening, uh, when it's happening. Um, and really, most, historic, most true and honest historians, even atheist ones or those who are antagonistic to the gospel, would agree that Jesus died, was crucified on a Roman cross, and that he had, he had all these people who were saying things, but he had a following. That's just historical fact. Insofar as we're able to say anything is a historical fact. That's not just, that those points aren't just spoken of in the Bible, because you'll have some people who will discount the, the historicity of Jesus at all, because they'll say, well, the, the whole Bible is suspect. Because it's written by a bunch of like patriarchal, um, like it's, it's, it's written by men who are trying to control people or whatever the reason rationale might be. Um, what's the main reason why the Bible is suspect? What's it got in there? Miracles. If it wasn't for the miracles, we just have a, it, it doesn't raise as many eyebrows. But you got a lot of pretty significant miracles that Jesus was doing, and then his own resurrection from the dead. That's like, okay, obviously this whole thing is a fairy tale or a myth or something. Except for you've got all these non-Christian, so atheists, Jews, uh, other pagan scholars, historians, writing at the time, at least agreeing that there, were, that there was this guy named Jesus who was claiming to be God, who was, who was crucified, and he had all these people who followed him around. And then, this is helpful, these people were willing to die on the testimony that they had seen Jesus rise again. For me, that's the most helpful note. Like, it's not just that the Bible, yes, the Bible's true. But what brings a lot of, uh, a lot of more veracity or, or truthfulness from our perspective to the scriptures is we have... We have this first generation of Christians who had nothing to gain from lying or making up a story, especially so many people getting some kind of conspiracy together. In fact, if they got, it, if they got some conspiracy together, they're like, okay, let's, let's make up some lie about Jesus rising from the dead, and then we'll start a church, and we'll get people's money, and it'll be great. That, whole, that all goes away as soon as one Roman guy walks up to Peter with a knife and says, admit that this whole thing is a sham. Why would Peter at that point go along with the lie? Why would all of the disciples who, are, who died brutal martyrdoms, why would they all go along with what they knew to be a lie? Everybody would have just bailed on that. I mean, the, only, the only example I can come up with in a, a situation where a person would be willing to die a brutal death like that for something they knew to be false would be like what happened in, it's like the Godfather 2, I think. I can't, I get them all confused, we're so long. The one dude who was like, he was supposed to give testimony at the, at, at, like the next day to the, to, in a court scene. And then the guy comes to visit him in prison and says, you know, um, in, the old, in the old days, um, when, when there had been an attempt at um, an overthrow of a leader, the person who was caught would, would be asked to, they, they'd be given a chance to kill themselves so that uh, their, the rest of their family would be taken care of. 
And reading between the lines there, what, what the guy was telling this mafia um, guy was, if you don't kill yourself, then we're going to kill your family. If you do kill yourself, we'll take care of your family. So the connection here would be, okay, if all the disciples, if, they're, if they have this like promise, that, okay, we're going to die for this lie, and we're all, gonna, we're all in agreement on this, that we're all going to die for this lie, but we know that by dying for it, we'll ensure that all of our kids will be loaded. Well, not only did most of them not have kids, but none of that, there's no money. There was nothing, there's nothing to gain outside of just death for them, except for they knew they were going to rise again. And that's why they were willing to die. And that's why the historian accounts of these people who are claiming to have, claiming to have seen Jesus die and they were willing to even joyfully skip, in some cases, to their own martyrdoms. It's because they knew that they were gonna rise again too. Because otherwise, I saw Jesus dead and then I saw him alive. And before he died and rose, he had said all these things that we're kind of skeptical of. I mean, he said he was God, but I mean, we're like, we'll see. <laughs> And then when he rises again from the dead, all of a sudden everything clicks. You're willing to die for that. So when you've got these, the testimony of, of the martyrdom of the disciples is, is um, I think, quite convincing. But some atheists would argue that the body was, um, the body was stolen by grave robbers, by, or maybe even by the disciples themselves, so that they could then claim that there was a resurrection. That was even argued in the context of the, like I think it's at the end of one of the gospels, you have this assertion that, um, hey, um, we, that, that's why the, the Roman, that's why the Jews wanted guards in front of the tomb because they were saying, look, what's gonna happen is the Jews or the, these Christians are so die hard in this, in this lie that Jesus is gonna rise from the dead. They're probably gonna go steal the body and then say that Jesus rose from the dead. So they had guards there around the tomb which then, it's not recorded in Luke, but they end up like passing out because there's a giant earthquake and there's angels and all the soldiers pass out and go running away at the resurrection and the resurrection morning. Uh, and all, again, the same, the same argument lines up that if the disciples did steal the body, I mean, we do have to deal with this problem. There's no body in the tomb. Jesus died. People saw him die. Then they saw him be put in a tomb, but then where's the body? And if the disciples stole it on some conspiracy theory, why were they willing to die for that point? If they, they're the ones with the body. I mean, if it were me, I'd be like, as soon as they come at like me or my family with a knife, it's like, no, 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 the body's in the garage. <laughs> but unless it's, tr unless it's actually true, there's no, there's no body because Jesus had risen from the dead, right? Um, now, others, others make the, the case that perhaps Jesus wasn't dead I know we talked about this before, um, like the, it's called a swoon theory, that Jesus, he, um, he, had, he had taken the stuff that like Ju uh, Juliet took and, and Romeo and Juliet and it made his heart slow down. So he looked like he was dead, but he didn't really die. So then that night after like everybody had left, he like pops out of the tomb uh, and is able to move the giant rock from the inside. But that, that doesn't hold up for many reasons, not the least of which is the Romans who crucified him had one job, and that was to kill people. And if they didn't do it, then they got killed. They were incentivized to do their job very well. They had no reason to go along with some, some conspiracy idea here. 
and not kill Jesus. And because of the lashings that he had endured and the beatings that he had taken and just being crucified, even if, let's just say that maybe he didn't die. But like, especially in that time period, if you get like, if you step on a nail in your backyard, don't you kind of freak out a little bit? And you've had your tetanus shot. But can you imagine here, like he's getting bacteria-laden nails ripping into his skin. So if he didn't die on the cross, infection was going to get him pretty quick. And then he certainly wouldn't have been in good shape to walk on the road to Emmaus. And that would have also been accounted in Luke 24. Like, and there was this random guy walking with us on the road to Emmaus and his face was all just, like totally ripped apart and mangled. He was bleeding. He had the shirt was all bleeding everywhere. He was limping. No, and there's none of that because he actually, he actually died and he rose again, right? I know I don't want to belabor that point. Um, how are we doing? We've got a couple minutes left. Any other, uh, any, any, I, mean, I think there's a huge apologetic point when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus that we, that we, we make sure to be clear that a, a body was, the dead body was put in the tomb. The next morning, the tomb was empty. And that now the confession of Christ, the Christianity is number, number three. They walk up to the tomb. Well, let me get to the text here. Uh, verse three, when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, the same description of Jesus at the transfiguration. So we get these angelic guys. As, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. This joyful proclamation of Easter has always been Christ has risen. He is not here. He has risen. A um, couple of questions there in your handout. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Number two, a good reminder for us who often look for things that sustain life among the temporary things of this world. We often look for the things of life among the dead things. So just a reminder for us in our daily life to not be putting our fear, love, and trust in things that aren't actually life-giving, specifically our Lord Jesus. But what a, what a profound thing that the angels say to them. Why are, you looking among, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, for he has risen. It's not just he is not here, his body has been stolen. He is not here because he has risen. This is the main point that is attacked by atheists and all antagonists to Christianity. The crucifixion and death of Jesus are generally recognized as historical fact agreed upon by even atheist scholars. It's the resurrection of Jesus that's disputed. So why and how can we believe the resurrection was certain? That's what I went, went through earlier with this, um, the whole case for the disciples' authenticity of their confession. Uh, you could, I mean, some would make the case, I mean, there's a book um, called the, the Resurrection Fact that I've heard of. Um, makes a case that um, there's, there's just as much, there's as much evidence that the resurrection occurred as there is that Jesus existed. It's based on the testimony of the eyewitnesses because that's how we know most of history occurred, right? How do you know the civil war occurred if not from the testimony of the eyewitnesses? The only reason why this is problematic is because it's, it's an eyewitnesses to a resurrection event, which is hard to believe according to our our experience, our subjective experiences, right? But if, if, he, if a resurrection had actually occurred, wouldn't that be worth writing down and telling people about? <laughs> uh, and certainly worth dying for. 
So this is the beating heart of Christianity, uh, as, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. Now, uh, letter B at the bottom of your handout. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You're wasting your time. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are all people most to be pitied. Because at the very least, you're wasting your time right now. You fools, right? But if Christ has raised from the dead, then this is huge. Because if he's raised from the dead, I'm baptized into him, then I'm also going to rise again too. And it's not true because you really believe it in your heart. That's faith in your faith. But it's actually true because why would the eyewitnesses lie about it? So we've got, we've got a lot of a strong foundation for the confession that we have as Christians. Any quick comments or questions there? Yes. Did everybody hear that? I hope not, because I'm going to pick up on there next week. <laughs> so, the, so the, quickly, so the, the, body that, the body that he rose in was not the body that's all mangled and bloodied, um, except for he still have his scars. And he was the same age, who has implications for how we, we can maybe think about how our will rise. But the importantly is, as we bury our loved ones who are dying with crazy illnesses and, and the bodies who have totally been destroyed by sin and death, uh, the idea of them rising again with those same destroyed bodies and mangled bodies is not the case. Right, eternal bodies, Johnson. Good, thank you. Well, we'll pick up there next week. The Lord be with you.